Matthew chapter 15. Uh, read along with me. This, this story uh, is one of the more controversial stories in Jesus' ministry. Um, but before I say anything more, let's just go ahead and turn to it. Matthew chapter 15. Let's start in verse 21 and read down to verse 28. And going away from there, Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is, is possessed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and were also pleading with him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was not set, sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and was now bowing down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said to her, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and he said to her, O oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Would you bow with me as we, as we consider this? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for everything that's in it, everything that is just sweet and pleasant uh, right from the get-go. Um, you said it is, your father, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. For God so loved the world, he sent his only Son. Whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's verse after verse after verse of just, I mean, immediately when it hits your ears, it's sweet, it's welcoming. Thank you, Jesus. And I thank you for, for passages like this that challenge us, that challenge our assumptions, that challenge our, our, um, our preconceived notions or our sensitivities. Lord, may we bow a knee to Scripture here and now. We're, we want to hear from, from you, not my opinion, not my sensitivities, not my ideas, not what I think, Lord. We are here to listen to your word. So through your servant, please speak now. Um, communicate to those who are here tonight by the power of your spirit in a way that is absolutely unique to them and in a way that they need specifically. We trust you with all things, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I wasn't planning on doing this, but uh, as Taylor was singing those, those first two songs, uh, there, were, there were a couple of lines that jumped out at me uh, as we're considering this text before us that I want us to remember as we go into this, because as I just read, I don't need to say anything more. Obviously, this is a text that um, causes some ruffled feathers. And so the first thing that I want us to remember is we just sang a song that said, you are perfect in all of your ways. He's perfect in all of his ways. The ways that makes sense to us, the ways that we understand. There is a leper who needs healing, and he just holds his hand out. He says, I am willing to heal you, and he does. There's, there's no qualm with that. There's no one that's got beef with that. This is a different kind of story. This is a story of love, but it's a story of, of tough love. And so let us remember that Jesus is perfect in all of his ways. The second song that we sang, we said the, we said the words, Oh, what a Savior, isn't he wonderful? The Father's arms are open wide. Let us remember that as we, as we engage this text. What a Savior, isn't he wonderful? The Father's arms are open wide. This, this text tonight uh, 
gives us an opportunity to change the way that we think of a text. This is not an opportunity for us to try to change the text to fit the way that we think. And if you're, if you're bothered by this text, if this text makes you mad, I don't care if you're a man or a woman or where you're from, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference to me. There's, there's reason in this text to be like, wait a minute, what? Why? What is he doing? What is he thinking? What is he saying? That's okay. It's okay to start there. It's okay to feel that. That's, that's fine. But let us actually look into what Jesus is actually doing and what he's not doing. Because um, I think that there's been a lot of damage done in the, with this text because people have read into it their own biases, their own sensitivities, their own concerns. And so they, they start teaching a, a, a couple of things that are absolutely heretical. And one, that's that Jesus is a racist. And that in this story, he gets checked for his racism and then has to repent of his racism and quote-unquote do his work. That's not what's happening here. One of the pastors that uh, I heard, uh, I didn't listen to his whole sermon, but I listened to uh, you know, the middle chunk of it, and he kept saying that Jesus is holding back salvation from a woman of color. That's what he's doing. He's holding back salvation from a woman of color. And it just goes to show and I mean, this guy was in his 60s. He should have known better. It just goes to show how easy it is for us to read the Bible and assume, because of our own lens, what the Scripture is telling us. Because if I could sit down over a decaf with my friend who was preaching that sermon, I'd say, bro, I can't believe I'm having to say this in 2022, but Jesus wasn't white. Jesus was a man of color. So it makes no sense that he's racist towards a woman of color. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with sexism. We're not dealing with prejudice. We're not dealing with racism. We're not dealing with any of that. This is actually far more uplifting, and this is far greater. This is a story of a test, and it's a story of a faith that Jesus calls a great faith. And before I begin in verse 21 at the start, I want to actually go to the end and begin there. Because I want us to see that throughout this entire discourse here, throughout this entire story, I want us to remember and see step by step this woman's persistence, her humility, and her great faith. And if you need to write that down so you can remember it as we go through, write it down. Her persistence, her humility, and her great faith. Because that is what Jesus says here. Verse 28, Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Now just pause there Woman, your faith is great. Juxtapose that, cross-reference that with some of, the, some of the things that Jesus has said to his own disciples, these men who have been following him for the last three years. Because it's not quite as uplifting as the things that he says as it is what he just says to this woman. It's not like Thomas. This is very unlike Thomas. We just looked at Thomas a few weeks back in John chapter 20. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has been killed. He's been buried. He is resurrected from the, from the dead. He is back walking amongst his friends. And, and Thomas shows up in chapter 20, verse 25, saying, I'm not going to believe. There's no way. He says, I will not believe unless I see the mark in his hands and I see the hole in his side. I will not believe. That is not great faith. Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. It's probably on the same page as what we're looking at right now. It is in my Bible. Chapter 14, verse 31 Peter asked Jesus, says, hey, Jesus is, they're on a boat. Jesus is walking on the water towards them. And, and Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you. And Jesus says, come. 
And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and he came towards Jesus. But he saw the wind and he became frightened and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, I love that, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and he took hold of him and he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 16, verse 8. It's a funny story, actually, but... Jesus warns his followers to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples start talking amongst themselves, what is he talking about? Is it because we forgot to bring bread on the trip? And Jesus says to them, oh, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you still not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and the seven loaves for the 4,000. Oh, you men of little faith. Again and again and again. Matthew 6, chapter 30. Fear, fear not. Be anxious for nothing. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? One more. Chapter 8, verse 26. Again, the men are on a boat with Jesus in the boat and a big storm kicks up. This is actually a story that I'd love to preach on sometime because I'm really, I'm really intrigued by this. There's this massive storm that swells up. The boat's getting tossed all around. And it says in verse 26 that there was a great storm on the sea and the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was sleeping. And they came to him and they got him up and they said, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you acting so cowardly, you men of little faith? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea and they became perfectly calm. But this woman, the end of the story is, woman, your faith is great. He's testing her faith. He's showing her, he's giving her an opportunity to live out the faith that she has internally in an experiential way. He knows what's in her. He knows what she's capable of. And this is also a, this is also a breakthrough. This isn't entirely unique in Jesus' ministry. The way that he's doing it here is the only time in Scripture we're told he does it quite like this. But he, he does stuff like this, generally speaking, because salvation was to come through the Jews. It wasn't reserved just for them. It was to come through them and to the rest of the world. And it was always to be like that. Even from the very beginning, when God called Abram out of the Earl of the Chaldees in Genesis 12, he said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Even portions of the earth that Abram didn't know existed. And then all the way at the very end of his ministry, just as Jesus is about to ascend back to the right hand of the Father, he looks at his disciples and his followers and he says, go into all the world. Every ethnicity is what it says in the Greek. Go to every ethnicity. Pantata ethne. Go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Israel was the chosen people through whom salvation would come and Jesus is here fulfilling that purpose. It is part of the now and not yet character of redemptive history. And there are portions, there's areas in Jesus' ministry where it breaks out, where what is going to be in the future makes itself manifest here in the present. There is this woman here in Matthew 15, but we also have the story of the centurion in Matthew 8. A Roman guy. Everybody hates the Romans. The Jews are not happy with the Romans, and yet Jesus is approached by a centurion who comes to him and says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, and he is fearfully tormented. And Jesus said, well, I will come and I will heal him. And the centurion goes on to say, listen, you know what? I am not worthy to have you come under the roof 
of my house. I am a man in authority with people under me. I have people over me. There's people that tell me to come, and I do. There's people that I tell to come and go, and they do as I say. Just say the word, and it will be done. Verse 10, Matthew 8, 10. Jesus heard this, and he marveled at the man, and he said to those who were following, truly I say to you that in all of Israel I have not found such great faith. So Jesus is not against breaking the seal a little bit. You know, before Pentecost, there are people who come into Jesus's midst, have faith, saving faith, and are saved. Uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, a woman of Sychar. Remember in that story, the disciples are actually appalled that Jesus is there talking with a woman. And John, the author of that gospel, makes it very clear explicitly that she is a woman, and she's not just a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. And that was scandalizing because Jesus is not a racist. Jesus has no patience for that. Jesus breaks down walls of hostility, but he was living in a time in a, in a land that was plagued by that evil. And him talking with that woman was a social faux pas, and what I love about our Lord is he did not care. Sitting with a Samaritan was a social faux pas, and what I love about our Lord is he did not care. He saved that woman there at the well, and then she ran into town. Jesus came into Sychar, and either all of the town or most of the town was saved. It was to the Jews first. Salvation came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. This is not about race. This is about religion. It is about a process that God in his wisdom and in his omnipotence and his omniscience has played out, has planned out, and we see Jesus here in the very inner workings of this process. And so we have to set ourselves aside, we have to set our assumptions aside, we have to set aside for a minute our 21st century beef and actually look at what Jesus is doing. He's breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, between some color and another color. Jesus is not interested in that. He created all of us. He loves all of us. The Bible says that in God's kingdom there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female. And it doesn't mean that we lose our individuality. It means that all of these things that we pick fights with one another about, gone. Dead. Jesus does not honor that. Jesus has no patience for it. But he is testing this woman because he knows that she possesses a great faith to the Jews first and then to the Greek, which is exactly what Romans 1.16 says. Paul writes that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so with just sort of that opening idea, getting into what, we're going on, what, we're, what we got going on here, back, back to verse 21, and going a little way from there, Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So he withdrew from there. Jesus was in the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee, and he heads in the last part of, of chapter 14, and then he heads north. And he heads north, he goes away from there, heads north into Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon is a good bit north. It's 20 miles, the outer perimeter of Tyre and Sidon are 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus huffs it from the sea up north to Tyre and Sidon, which is just straight Gentile territory. He says that he left this area to go up there. And we don't really know why, but we do see this in Jesus' ministry air so often where things get really out of hand, things get really turned up, people get really upset or they get really intrigued, and Jesus goes away. That woman that he met in, at, at the well in Sychar on the border of Samaria, he was on his way north into Galilee because things in Jerusalem were getting too hot. And so he, he dipped out. He went to a place where, where our temperaments were a little bit more 
cool. And if we read chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, that's probably what's going on because Jesus tunes up some of the religious leaders, calls them hypocrites because they're trying to tell Jesus that his followers are sinners for not washing their hands before they eat. And Jesus is like, listen, why do you transgress the law of God for the sake of your tradition? And everybody gets mad about it. And so Jesus has left that area. He's gone to Tyre and Sidon, far north, which is now the, southern Leban- the, the border of southern Lebanon. And in this frenzy, he goes out to seek quiet before the cross. And that far north, there's no, there's no Jewish authorities that would have followed him. So he gets a little bit of peace, a little bit of quiet. But then in verse 22, behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is possessed by a demon. Now, this is interesting. This is, again, one of those things. Jesus is squashing prejudice. He does it slowly in this story, but he is squashing prejudice. This is a Canaanite woman, and that may not mean anything to us, but if you go back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and read verses 1 and 2, there was big beef between the Jews and the Canaanites. The Canaanites were actually a people that were put on the list for destruction, the list for war. And generations later, here is this Canaanite woman who, unfortunately, every, every Jewish person would have not been comfortable around And this woman approaches, she comes to Jesus, and she's crying. And here we begin to see already her persistence. She's consistent. She's faithful. She's got great faith, and she's humble. She comes and she's crying. And I want to just, don't miss this detail here, that she's under this great weight. Her little girl is possessed by a demon, and that's a terrible plight. I don't know what that would be like, but she comes to Jesus desperate, but I love that she comes to Jesus. Whatever it is that's ailing us, whatever it is that's bothering us or hurting us, it is a great mercy, what some would call a severe mercy, if it brings us to the feet of Jesus, and that's exactly what happens here. Psalms 51.8 says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Whenever he does things that hurt us, whenever he allows things that hurt us, He's trying to draw us to him. He's trying to wean us off of our own independence and our own autonomy. And this woman in her plight finds her way to the feet of Jesus asking for mercy. I was at lunch today with some friends, um, Josh and, 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 and Chelsea and Beth were there. And, and we were with my wife and with Mel and his wife Kathy. And Kathy threw out this beautiful quote from Charles Spurgeon that addresses this very thing. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. And the waves in this woman's life have quite literally thrown her up onto the rock of ages. Here she is at Jesus' feet asking for something that she knows she doesn't deserve. She asks for mercy. And this is humility. In contrast to the Jews who don't believe in Jesus at all and are always trying to pick a fight with him and always trying to belittle him and always trying to uh, catch him up and trick him and and trying to find a way to make him a fool in front of everybody and they always lose, they always fail, they always blow it. Jesus always wins because he's perfect. And here is this Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite, who is bowed down before him begging for mercy. It's an amazing picture. Even the power that Jesus has to do this miracle, the Pharisees would say, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders would say that the power that he has is the power of the devil it's himself. Now, this is mysterious. She calls him Lord, son of David. And I have no idea where she got that term from because 
She's a Canaanite woman. That's a very Jewish term. I don't know where she heard that, but it's very possible that she had seen Jesus at some time before. She had heard his teaching. She'd heard rumors about him. Maybe she had seen his miraculous powers displayed before, and so that's how she knew that he was capable of this. But not even Nicodemus gave this label to Jesus. In John 3, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus himself, comes in the night to Jesus and says to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher come from God, which is just like, just such a miss. It's just such a miss. It's just like shooting for the hoop and just air ball all the way. It's the way that I play hoops right there. That's my basketball score. I mean, it's just a total miss. You're a teacher who comes from God. I heard one preacher say it once, and I'll say, I'll repeat it the rest of my life. Jesus is not a teacher come from God. Jesus is God come to teach. This woman at least knows enough to identify him by the designation son of David, and it's probably just because she had seen him around. In Matthew 4, verse 24, we're told that his fame went through all Syria and all brought to him those who were sick and afflicted with various diseases and pains and were oppressed by demons, people that were epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee all the way from the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Somewhere, somehow, this woman has learned who Jesus is, and she has faith enough in him to fall at his feet and beg for mercy. But he replied not a word. Verse 23. He answered her not a word, and his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. He replied not a word. And so here the testing really begins. This woman is vulnerable. This woman is humble. She is persistent. She is faithful, and she comes to the Lord and he replies to her, not a word. And what we're going to see here played out, but begins right here, is that great faith persists. And if God feels like he is silenced, and I know that some of you have expressed that. Some of you have said it just feels, it feels like God is just not here. It feels like God is not listening. And if he's listening, he's certainly not answering. Continue to pray, continue to persist, continue to trust, continue to obey, continue to believe God despite the circumstances that are happening. If God feels silent, he is working. But in this moment, he is silent. He, re he responds to her, not one word. And then she gets flack from the disciples. The disciples are telling her to get lost. Lord, tell this woman to go away. Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. Christians can be like that, can't we? They're inconvenienced by this woman, and so they want her to just go away. And we see this with the disciples a lot, and we see this in ourselves a lot. You know, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 uh, men plus women and children, about 20,000 people, it started uh, with the disciples being a little bit fed up and tired, saying, Lord, send these people away so they can go in town to eat. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, you give them something to eat, Christian. This is, on, this is on you. We can do this. Don't get annoyed and send them away. In chapter 19, the children are brought to Jesus so that he can lay his hands on them and bless them. And the disciples are so fed up with even that that it says that they rebuked the children. And then they got rebuked for rebuking the children. But man, I see our, this is our heart, isn't it? We can be like this. Leave me alone. What do you want? Another 10 bucks? Another ride? What? Friends, let's, let's stop. Let's stop. Let's remember that we ourselves are people in great need of mercy and not treat people like they're an inconvenience. They say she is shouting after us. So she, she, she's here faithfully, 
humbly trusting. She gets silence from Jesus, and she gets annoyance from the disciples, and yet she still persists. Her faith is overcoming great barriers. Jesus is making her wait, but it's for good reason. This, this delay that we see in Jesus, again, like I said, this is something that Jesus does generally do. This specific situation is unique, but Jesus does make people wait. There are times in the Gospels that we look at what Jesus is doing and we're like, in our hearts, we're like, come on, man. Like, we got, we got stuff to do here. There's, you're, what are you doing lollygagging about? In Mark chapter 5, Jarius comes to Jesus and says that his little girl is sick. You remember the story? Jesus says, all right, let's go. And they start walking to his house, and on the way, the woman with the issue of blood stops him in his track. She doesn't get in his face or anything. She just simply touches him as he's walking by, and he stops. And could you imagine the frustration that Jarius must have had at that moment? Like, dude, 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 we like, dude, let's go. You know, like really, like that would have been so infuriating. Time is of the essence. My little girl is going to be dead any minute and you're stopped because, quote unquote, Jesus said, somebody touched me. I mean, Jesus, so what? Someone touched you. You're in a crowd of people. Someone touched you. This is really what we're going to stop and talk about right now. Friends, I know you've been there. I've been there. But he's doing something. He's testing. He's pushing He's making his grace and his mercy even more pronounced because the little girl dies. Remember someone, the servant of Jarius comes and says, don't bother the teacher anymore, your little girl is dead. And then Jesus goes and says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And they try to laugh him out of the room, but he kicked them out of the room and he raised her from the dead. What a greater miracle to raise someone from the dead than to heal somebody from a sickness. But man, we do not want to trust Jesus in those moments, do we? Especially whenever it doesn't work out like that. My dad didn't recover from his cancer. He died. But you know what? That still does not shake my faith in this Jesus. He's good. Do you trust him? John chapter 6, he knew that he was going to feed the crowds. It's John's John's accounts of feeding the 5,000. But yet he takes the time to ask Philip. The crowds are there. Jesus sees them. The, The day is getting late. And Jesus asked Philip, What are we going to do? How are we going to feed all these people? But, in parentheses, Jesus knew what he was going to do. Why does he do that stuff? He's he's testing. He's making you exercise some patience. He's seeing what you're made of. He's seeing how you will respond. Well, you know what? Screw you, Jesus. I'm out of here. I'm done with this. I came to you for help. You're going to stop for this woman in the street. I'm done. This is a business project that didn't work out. I'm done. This is a relationship that didn't work out. I'm done. These things can happen because he's testing your faithfulness. Peter warns us, warns us and exhorts us and says, hey, when you come into, into trials, man, the testing of your faith, man, it makes you refined as gold. Don't run away because you get tested. Don't run away because things don't turn out. And maybe most frustratingly, one of the stories that drives me up the wall is the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus, get, this isn't just some random blind guy in the street. It's not some Syrophoenician woman who he's never met. This is his personal friend. Lazarus and Jesus were homies, and he, he gets the message that Lazarus is sick, and Jesus just stays where he's at. And then on, to top it off, he tells his followers, this illness isn't going to lead to death. And then a couple verses later, you hear out of Jesus' mouth him tell his disciples, we got to go, Lazarus has died. And when that happens in our life, we get mad. 
And the Bible is telling us again and again. Jesus is telling us again and again, do you, do you trust? Even when things look really bad, do you trust? There's waves coming up over the boat. Jairus' daughter is dead. Lazarus is dead. But again, Jesus goes down there. He raises Lazarus from the dead after four days of being in the tomb. People right then and there have a saving faith in Jesus, solidifying their eternity in his name by his blood, by his work. And that was actually the final nail in the coffin. The authorities were done with Jesus at that point. They put out a warrant for his arrest to kill him, which led to salvation for the entire world. Jesus had a way bigger idea in mind. And when he told his followers this illness does not lead to death, he wasn't lying, and he was telling the truth way beyond what anybody could possibly imagine. It is like him to hit pause and to make people wait. He even did it to his own mom in John 2. Sweetie, they're out of, they're out of wine at the wedding. Woman, what's this got to do with me? My time's not yet come. You know, he tests her, but then he gives her exactly what she's looking for. Even in the Old Testament, just one example from the Old Testament, Abraham, you're going to have a son. I know you're 100 years old. I know that your wife's 90, but you're going to have a son from your own body. And they waited 25 years for that to come true. When the Lord does those things, I can't always tell you what he's doing. I can't tell you what he's up to. I can't tell you what he has in mind, but I know that I have experienced this time and time again for years. And I just want to share this one story with you. Maybe, maybe it'll help. Maybe it'll hit home. But when I was in the process of, you know, just kind of setting my own wings on fire, I had just moved back from Peru. I left, uh, I, left the, I left Virginia where I had some of my stuff. I bought a motorcycle for the first time, and I started touring around the United States working for Samaritan's Purse. And I thought, okay, this is really my opportunity. This is really, this is really my chance. I'm here. I'm alone. I'm single. I'm all by myself in the great USA. I got a KLR 650 and $1,000 in my pocket. Let's, let's get to know each other. Jesus and doing work throughout Samaritan, my time at Samaritan's Purse, I made a habit of getting off work at the end of the day. I was in South Texas. I would hit the shower. I would go to the chow hall and then I would hop on my bike and I would ride my motorcycle out into the middle of nowhere. I would fire up a camel cigarette and I would sit on my saddlebags and I would just go, okay, God, I'm here. I'm here. Tell me what to do with my life. I'm 29. I'm single. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug user. What do you, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? Where are you at? And I'm telling you, friends, absolute silence. And there was a guy at Samaritan's Purse at the time who used to tell me all these stories about how when he was becoming a Christian, he would go out into the desert. He was from Arizona, and he would sit on the hood of his car, and he would say, Lord, I, I, just, I need a sign. I need you to, boy, to bolster my faith. Let me, give me a sign. Give me a shooting star. And according to this guy, you know, I think the Lord can do these things. I've never experienced it. But for like days in a row, he would look up in the sky and there'd be the shooting star going across the right. And I remember like hearing him say that and just being like, dude, shut up. You know, it's because I was jealous. You know, like the, the Lord didn't do that for me. And I was like, what's wrong with me? What's going on with me? The Lord let me do that all the way. I was so mad. I was so full of angst. It fired me up so much. It wasn't until I was in handcuffs. And facing two and a half years in jail, that it was then that the Lord showed me his grace and showed me his mercy. And most of you know the story. My two and a half year sentence just got thrown away. Everybody dropped the charges. The police dropped their charges. They dropped the fine. I walked out of the courtroom that day as if I'd walked in to drop off Grubhub. Like, I was nothing. I had nothing that was, there was, I had nothing going on. I had nothing hanging over my head. The Lord let me go for that long 
because his grace in that moment was so much more powerful than something that he could have done in the desert. He could have done whatever he wanted in the desert while I was sitting out there smoking a camel cigarette, but he had a plan, and I am so thankful for it. Friends, be patient. Please be patient. I know some of you are hurting. I know that some of you are in the middle, smack dab in the middle between a rock and a hard place. Friends, just be patient. He's, he's doing something, and I don't know what, but do you believe that? It's like him to make us wait. So verse 24, Let her, send her away. She's shouting at us, and Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The testing continues. Jesus had to fulfill every Old Testament type that there was. He had to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He had to be the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy of Messiah. Every single sacrifice, every single prophet, every single king, every ceremony, tradition, every lamb that was slaughtered, every scapegoat that was sent out into the wilderness, Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that. He was, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he had to fulfill that promise. He had to fulfill his promise of coming from the line of David. He had to fulfill his promise to Abraham that through Abraham's line, the entire world would be blessed. He had to fulfill that. He had to make that promise come true. But also notice this. He remains silent with the woman, but he also ignores the disciples. Because the disciples even say, like, send her away, get her out of here, and he doesn't. It's the first sign that he's up to something that we can see. He doesn't send her away. They say, send her away, and he doesn't answer them in regards to that. He ignores them. He's ignoring everybody because he's up to something. And so she keeps coming. She comes, verse 25. She's persistent, she's humble, and she has great faith. She came, and she bowed down before him, saying, Lord, help me. I love that. She knows that Jesus is it. She knows that Jesus is her last hope. From the area of the world where she's from, they have a pantheon of gods. There's a pantheon of gods in the Canaanite uh, religious belief system. And this woman, just like Peter, Lord, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. This woman comes to Jesus because she knows that that pantheon of gods is false. It's a lie. Jesus is the only one. And now the testing really hits a climax. And he said to her, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this because it's actually a pretty direct point. Uh, not as much time as, as maybe you would expect or some people would expect. Um, the, the first thing that I want to point out, and it's just a technicality, but it might take some of the sting off, is that there's two words in the Greek for dog. And one is, like, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. When I was living in Peru, it was common. It was an everyday occurrence to see packs from like six to ten of these wild, mangy, dirty, flea-ridden dogs that would, that would dig through trash cans and, you know, just kind of like, you know, they pooped in the street and they were gross and they were mean and they were unpredictable and they kind of scared you whenever you saw like ten of them coming towards you. There is a word for that in the Greek. And Jesus does use that earlier in Matthew's gospel. He says, do not give to dogs what is sacred. And he uses the word for mangy, rabid, gross unhospitable, unfriendly, not the kind of dog you want to snuggle with. But then there is another word for the dog that you do want to snuggle with. There is a, there's a word for dog that does mean little dog, a pet, a household pet. And that is the word that Jesus uses. 
And Matthew, the author, makes sure to use a different word in this context. He does that on purpose. He does this intentionally. And I know a dog is not a child, but we, <laughs> I mean, especially in Portland, we, we care about our dogs. I live in Northeast, and there's a store a couple blocks down from my house where you can get, like, gourmet, organic. It's like $25 a pound for your dogs. And I watch dogs eat their own vomit and whatever else is laying around. But $25 for gourmet dog food, you know what? That's sweet. I'm totally into it. I've got no problem with it at all. We love our animals, but there is a difference between a dog and a child. There's a big difference. As much as we might love our animals, there is a big difference between a dog and a child. But Jesus is not calling her a dirty, filthy, rabid animal who needs to get out of here. He doesn't send her away. But he is making a point. He is challenging her. And this is just a technicality. And, and you know, it, it makes sense that uh, most people are still offended. You know, so that's sometimes people's immediate rebuttal is, well, this isn't the word for mangy dog. This is the word for pet. People are like, I don't care. He calls her a dog. I don't care what word he uses. Fair enough. But remember what he's doing. He's not, he's not pushing her away. He's testing her. He's seeing how she'll respond. How are you going to respond to this? He's not a racist. He's loving. He is perfect in all of his ways, but he is testing her. How do you respond when something happens like that? How do you respond when somebody says something or does something that you don't know how to take? Do you respond with, well, screw you, buddy, and, and march off? Do you do that to God? Do you do that to Jesus? I've done that to Jesus. I, after, after a couple, three or four weeks in Texas, smoking camels on the back of my motorcycle, waiting for I don't know what, I did that. I did it hard. I did it, for, I did it so hard, I ended up in handcuffs six months later. How do you respond? What does she do? This is a test. What do you do when you come up against something that you find offensive? Is Jesus being intentionally rude? Is he just being spiteful? Is he just being mean? Is he just jabbing her for no reason? I say no. No, he's not. He's absolutely not. But this could be offensive. She could respond to this in a negative way. But I, you know, there's so many places in the Bible where this is true. How many of, take, take your pick. What, which one of these verses upsets you? Ephesians 2 verse 12 you were separated from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Now, mind you, he's writing that to a people who are Gentiles and are saved. But he's saying there was a time that you were outside of the family of Israel. But that was leading to something. That was not an end. It was a means to an end. But we read that and it can upset us. John 3, 36, whoever rejects the Son will not see life, and the wrath of God remains on them. What does that do to you? The wrath of God? We hate this language. So is our response to say, all right, well, I'm done. I don't want to hear anymore. I don't care. I'm not interested. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Matthew 7, 11. I mean, a drive-by shooting, if Jesus ever did one, he just, is, he, just like, he just lays it down without even like batting an eye. He's talking to his disciples. And he's like, which one of you who being evil knows how to give good gifts? Is your father in heaven not even more so going to give good gifts? And I'm sure that one of them was like, wait a minute, did he just, did he just call us evil? Just fly by night like that? He just escaped? 
right over it. Friends, do you, do you know that you're unworthy? Do you know that it's nothing but grace? It's nothing but God's love? There's nothing in us. We're sinners. We don't deserve this. This woman didn't deserve this. We don't deserve it. We're all the same. It doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter what country of origin. It doesn't matter our color of skin. It doesn't matter our, our, our sex. It doesn't matter what time in history we were born. This is all an act of magnificent grace. This is how gracious Jesus is. He loves us even though we don't deserve it. He loves us even though we do deserve wrath because of our sin. Psalms 53, I mean, put this, put this at, your, at your bed rest. Right here, read this before you go to sleep. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then just a personal, eviscerating, soul-sucking statement. Jesus looked at the, in Peter's face in Matthew 16 and said, Get behind me, Satan. Friends, what's the point here? What's going on? We're sinners who need a Savior. And we can't get past this. We can't get past that the Bible says this. We can't get past that Jesus says tough things. But it's not to beat us down. It's not to beat us up. It's not to hurt us. It's to give us a realistic understanding of where we actually are in the universe. God so loved the world. A love that we don't deserve, that's what makes his love so great. He loved because he is love. And we love because he first loved us. He sent his only son so that whosoever, male, female, black, white, Syrophoenician, Palestinian, North American, South American, it doesn't matter. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is not about race. This is about religion. And she's even outside of the citizenship of Israel and she deserves nothing, but the thing is, is that she knows it. This is where her great humility really shines forth. How would you respond if Jesus said that? Listen to how she responds. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. It was a challenge, and she took it. She responded with wit. She didn't yell. She didn't cuss. She didn't spit. She didn't kick him in the shin and run away. She actually finishes his analogy. What she's basically saying is, well, even if I am a dog, okay, fine, uh, I'm a house pet, but at least I'm in the house. And I get the crumbs that the family feasts on. I'm not worthy of this. I'm, she's asking for mercy, and she knows it. She doesn't ask to be a child. She doesn't ask Jesus to change his plans. She doesn't even ask to sit at the table. But here he is in Gentile land. His very presence there in Tyre and Sidon, for, further north than he ever went, is in and of itself a crumb that has fallen from the table. And she has enough confidence in him and a realistic sense of herself and what she does and doesn't deserve that she comes to him in faith and she falls at his feet. And so great is her faith. Jesus knew, I don't, I don't, I don't buy in with the people who say that Jesus was actually saying this and then changed his mind. I don't buy into that. I don't believe that it's true. And the reason is in John's gospel in chapter two, you guys have probably know this well already. John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem and it says that when he was at the Passover during the feast, many of them there believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. It's sort of a Greek play on words. What, Jesus, what it says there is that they believed in him but he wasn't believing in them because he knew all men. 
And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man and woman. He knows what's in this woman's heart. He sees her. He sees her magnificent faith. He sees her humility. He knows that it's there, and he pushes on it. He challenges it so that she can respond. He waits. He hesitates. He's silent. He says something controversial, not actually calling her a dog, but engaging with her. How, are you, how is this? How is this? How do you? You know you don't deserve this. I actually came for the people down south. And she says, yeah, I know, but I believe in you. I don't care. I want crumbs. And he loves it. He challenges her and he makes her wait, but he doesn't say send her away. The disciples said send her away. Jesus refuses. This waiting that she had to go through We may have to go through. We may experience something like that, but we have to keep praying and persisting and believing and be humble and trust what he does. Psalms 138.6, it's the haughty or the arrogant that he knows from afar. This woman's persistence, her humility, and her great faith are inspiring. Jesus' first answer and his second answer was discouraging, and I wonder if there's anyone here tonight who can relate to that. First answer and second answer are both discouraging, but the disciples <clears throat> were the disciples were also were discouraging to her. The disciples discouraged by telling Jesus to send her away. But she continued, she persisted, and she prayed the same prayer as Jacob in Genesis 32 when he's wrestling with the Lord. I will not let go until you have blessed me. She is tenaciously after King Jesus. And what a reward she got for it. Jesus told her something that is awesome. Jesus told her something that I hope one day to hear. He said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Her faith was tested. She persevered, and it came out strong. And Jesus knew that that was what was going to happen. Jesus knows what's in all people. And she wasn't given something lesser then. She was given something, in Jesus' own words, as you desire, as you wish, so you receive. She received more than just a crumb. She got exactly what she wanted. And I know that this is, this is hard. Jesus is testing this woman. But what this test reveals is a robust faith, a tenacious faith, an amazing faith, a faith that even makes God pause and go, this is a great faith. And we always have to remember who it is, that this, who is, who it is that's doing this. This is Jesus. He was tested. He was hurt. He was crying out like this mother was, absolutely beside herself, on the ground, bowed down before Jesus, killed over in grief, killed over in wanting to have relief. And do we not see this in Jesus Christ himself? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he said that he is so sorrowful that he's at the point of death. We're told that he was bleeding out of his forehead. The blood capillaries in his forehead had burst. He was under such strain. And he cried out to God and said, may this cup pass from me. May this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will. And you know what he got? Silence. Silence. And so he went to the cross. He died there. He came to earth knowing that he was going to die there, but so great was the agony, he still couldn't help himself in his humanity to cry out to the Father and say, please, is there any way other than this? And he received silence in return. He prayed that the cup would pass, and it did not. 
First Peter 2.23 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. The thing about our Lord, the thing about Jesus, is you might be going through a trial, you might be going through a testing, you might feel completely dejected, you might feel like the Lord is ignoring you, he's not. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he even experienced that himself. Do you know that? Do you believe that? He experienced that. He's not cold. He's not calloused. He cares so much about our pain that he actually uses it, and he cares so much about us that he entered a level of pain that we can't even possibly imagine. And he did it because of us. He did it because of our sin. This sin that if we don't believe in him, we'll die in. This rejection, this none is righteous, no, not one. No, no one seeks after God. No one does good. That's because of our sin. And he loves us so much, he refused to leave us there. And so he came and he took that on himself. And because he is perfect, he was overqualified for death. And that eternal spiritual life he now gives us, that perfect, that perfect record. Colossians 1 describes it as holy and blameless and above reproach. Colossians 1 says that's exactly why he went to the cross. So that, or in order that we would be holy and blameless and above reproach just like him. We get his record and it cost him dearly. And in his agony he cried out and he was, and he was, he was met with silence. And then on the cross, what did he get? He's there being obedient. He's there doing exactly what the plan is. And he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This woman was not told to be sent away. She did not get sent away. Jesus did not say, send her away, but Jesus on the cross was, was sent away. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He may be doing something like this in your life that you don't understand and that you don't like, but friends, can you at least humble yourselves and understand that he's doing something? And whatever it is, he's been through far worse, and that makes him far more trustworthy. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus loves us. Jesus isn't a racist. He loves this woman. We're told later in the book of Ephesians that the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. He challenges her and he tests her. But I will, I will not believe for one minute ever that he had any animosity or amorous towards this woman whatsoever. He did not repent of anything. He's perfect in all of his ways and this woman stood the test and she got told from the lips of Jesus himself your faith is awesome way to go girl your faith is awesome your little girl's not doing well boom healed done at once immediately friends Jesus is good I hope tonight that this helps you come to scripture and not just go well I don't like that and throw it away I don't trust Jesus. I don't like what he's doing. I don't understand what he's doing and walk away. Friends, he's, he's, he's way too smart. He's way too wise. He's doing, something, he's doing something good. I don't need to give you all my personal examples. You've heard them already. But do you believe in this Jesus who went to the cross for your sins? Even whenever it's tough, he's good. Amen? Amen.